John 19, we're going to be looking at verse 12 to 16, but I'm going to back up to verse 5 because there's so much context. We're in the middle of this judgment scene of Jesus. Verse 5, So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered, We have a law, and according to that law he ought to die, because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, Behold your king! They cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. Father, let us enter in. Let us see clearly. Give us minds and hearts to be attentive to Your Word and to gain that which You have placed here for our conviction, for our good, for the changing of our hearts for Christ's sake. Amen. So Pilate's in trouble, and he knows it. It's very clear to him that Jesus is an innocent man. He's said it now three times. And while normally that wouldn't really be a big deal to a man like Pilate, he's ordered the execution of lots of potentially innocent men. This time it's different. There is something about this man he just can't get past. Who is he? Where did he come from? Is he really from another realm, a kingdom beyond this world? And so we're told from this point on, Pilate is desperate to find a way to set Jesus free. And the Jewish leaders must have picked up on that because immediately they began to shout in verse 12, if you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. And so let's begin there by looking, well, first of all, at Pilate's dilemma. Pilate must choose between Caesar or Christ. He cannot have both. Now, there's a lot of baggage behind these words that they shout. If you release this man, you're no friend of Caesar. By the way, notice first that they can't even say Jesus' name at this point. 
He's just this man. And it's been the same for a while now. He's just a problem to be dealt with. You know, get rid of him. Cast him out. Crush him. Kill him. Crucify him. That's what they want. Uh, Such is the animosity in the human heart toward the one who truly is the king. Kill him. Or you're no friend of Caesar. Friend of Caesar. Look at those words. That's not just a phrase they plucked out of thin air. Uh, Being a friend of Caesar was a thing in those days. And if you were a politician like Pilate, it was a very important thing. To be a friend of Caesar meant that you were in with him, that you were favored by him, that you were uh, protected politically. But to be out with him puts you in great peril. Um, Especially with this Caesar, Tiberius. Uh, The older Tiberius got, the more paranoid and suspicious he became, and many executions followed from that. I mean, think about how it is in Russia today. To be in with Putin is great. To be out with him is deadly. So Pilate needs to be in with Caesar. Now, Pilate himself likely never actually had this title friend of Caesar as it was becoming a title. I doubt Caesar really even knew exactly who he was. But but Pilate had a friend and patron named Sejanus. And I'm grateful for uh, Jason Wellam reminding me of this when we were talking last week. Sejanus had that title. In fact, he was about as in with Caesar as you could possibly be. He was captain of the Praetorian Guard, and even for a time he ruled Rome for Caesar while Caesar was kind of out on a mental health retreat. So close were Sejanus and Caesar that Tacitus, the Roman historian, once said, the closer a man is with Sejanus, the stronger his claim to the emperor's friendship. This was Pilate's safety net. Caesar favored Sejanus. Sejanus favored Pilate. It was, in fact, Sejanus who had gotten Pilate appointed as prefect of Judea, who protected him in Rome when the Jews complained about how he mishandled things. So as long as Sejanus was in power, Pilate was golden. But Sejanus fell. He became ambitious. His enemies denounced him to Caesar, and Caesar believed it. On October 18, 31 I.D., Sejanus was arrested, taken out, and executed along with a number of his friends. Probably the only thing that saved Pilate's neck at that point was that he was so far away in Judea and probably not really on Caesar's radar. But the Jews have just announced to Pilate they're willing to put him on Caesar's radar if he doesn't do this. They would have known all about these political maneuverings in Rome. They hated Sejanus, and frankly, he hated them. He was an anti-Semite. He was the force behind much of Pilate's animosity toward them in the earliest days, because when when Pilate first came, he told him, you have to rule these people with an iron fist. And so when Sejanus fell, the Jews rejoiced. And now they're ready to use this to their advantage. You release this man who claims to be a king. Pilate, you're no friend of Caesar and we'll make sure he knows about it. Pilate, you're on thin ice here. One word from us and you'll be denounced as a traitor. And you know what Caesar does with traitors. Remember your friend, Sejanus. Those words must have sent a cold chill down Pilate's spine. 
He knew they had him. And so every effort to release Jesus stops on a dime at this point, and Pilate prepares to turn him over for execution. When push came to shove, Pilate chose Caesar to save his own neck rather than dare risk his neck for Christ. What about you and me? Who would you have chosen at this point? Oh, it's easy to say, of course, Christ, looking back historically. But really, even now, is Christ worth the risk to you? Because you face this same kind of dilemma every day. No, not nearly as dramatically. It's not life and death for you at this point. But but every day you are faced with the choice to either stand with Christ at a cost or to avoid that cost by turning away from Him. Pilate turned away from Him. Which brings us into the next thing, and that is Christ's judgment. Here we see the condemnation of the King. Verse 13 and 14, So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement, and in Aramaic, Gabbatha, Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, Behold, your king. So Pilate caves. right? He wilts. Whatever courage he may have gained evaporates when he hears their threat. He leads Jesus outside, takes his seat on the judgment bench, and pronounces his condemnation. That, That judgment seat was in fact a small throne-like chair sitting on a large stone platform. That's why it's called the, the stone pavement. It was paved with a mosaic of various stones. And Gabbatha in Aramaic means a raised place. So we're thinking about a big raised stone platform with the judgment seat on it. That whole structure represented in Jerusalem the judicial power of Rome. This is the place where Rome's final judgment came down on your head. People lived or died based on what Rome proclaimed about them from that judgment seat. To sit on that throne meant that you had the power of life and death over others. But John does a funny thing here. As he records these events, John's language is surprisingly and frankly weirdly um, ambiguous. Grammatically, we could take John's sentence as it is in the original and understand it one of two different, almost opposite ways. We could read it, Pilate took his seat upon the judgment bench so that we see that Pilate is on that throne rendering judgment. Or, we could just as easily read these words to say, Pilate set Jesus upon the judgment seat. <laughs> Critics look at that and they say, well, you know, poor old John, he's just a sloppy writer. He didn't know what he was doing. And yet throughout this gospel, we have noticed how very intentional John is in his wording, wanting us to see things. Now, I believe fully that John is being purposefully ambiguous here because he wants us to think about something. As you're reading that along, it's kind of jarring and you kind of say, what? What is he talking about? Which of these men is really the judge here? 
Is it little Pilate whom Jesus has just told in verse 11? You would have no authority at all unless it had been given to you? Is Pilate the one on the judgment throne? Or are we supposed to see Christ as the one on the throne, the true judge to whom Pilate is accountable? And you remember that Jesus said back in John 5.22, the Father has given all judgment to the Son. It is Christ Himself who is the true judge before whom all humanity must stand. In fact, take a look at the the words judgment seat in verse 13. Uh, In Greek, it's the word bematos. Uh, You've heard it translated bema seat, perhaps. Bematos is the same word Paul then uses in 2 Corinthians 5 when he talks about the final judgment and the judgment seat upon which Christ Himself will one day sit. Uh, Listen to 2 Corinthians 5.10. He says, For we must all appear before the Bema, the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. We will all stand there. We will all stand there. Every one of us. That includes you, it it includes me, and it it certainly also includes Pilate. Now that's what John wants us to think about. Who is really under judgment here? Oh, it's not Christ ultimately. He is righteous and innocent. It's evident to all, even Pilate. He's not the one under condemnation of sin. We are. And friend, listen, you need to know who sits upon that judgment throne before you get there. You need to know before whom you will one day stand to give an account of your life. If it is just a man like Pilate, well, you can get away with a lot. Men miss things. But if it's not, if it's Christ, if it's the omnipotent Lord who knows and sees all things and cannot be bribed, you better know where you stand with Him. Revelation 20 gives us a preview of that final day. It says, John himself again writing, says, I saw a great white throne in Him who was seated upon it. From His presence earth and sky fled away. There was no more place found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before that throne. And books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. Christ is the judge. But second, we also see that Christ is the Lamb to be sacrificed. And thus, our only hope of escaping this final judgment. You say, well, 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 where do we see Him as the Lamb? I didn't catch that. Look at verse 14. Now, it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour when all these things took place. Day of preparation. That's pretty much the Jewish word for Friday at that point. Um, because Friday was the day you prepared everything for the Sabbath. Saturday, the next day, you couldn't do anything on the Sabbath, and so you had to prepare your meals and everything else in advance. But here we'll remind you that it's not just any old Friday. It was specifically the Friday of Passover week. 
And all the Jews all over Jerusalem that entire week, they have been remembering the sacrificial lamb of the Passover, the Paschal lamb. Uh, How death had been set loose upon Egypt by the judgment of God and the only hope of escaping God's judgment came through the blood of a slain lamb. Do you remember Exodus 12.13? The blood of that lamb shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are as they painted it on the houses. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. I mean, this is where that term Passover even comes from. God passes over our sin. He doesn't judge us as our sins deserve because Christ the Lamb took that judgment in our place. Isn't that exactly what John the Baptist says at the beginning of this Gospel? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So why does John's Gospel mention the Passover here? Is he just giving us a time stamp? Oh, just so you know, this all happened sometime around noon on Friday that week. No, no, no. Again, John is always pointing things out to provoke us to think about them, to see what's happening. This Jesus is not only the judge, He is not only the King as we're about to see, He is also the Lamb who takes the judgment away. John will later bring these two images of Christ on the throne and Christ as the Lamb together in the book of Revelation. Revelation 5, 5 and 6. One of the elders will say to John, Weep no more. Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has conquered. There's a kingly image for you. So that he is able to open the scroll with its seven seals. And so John looks to the throne where the king is to be found. And between the throne and the living creatures... I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. Christ, the conquering King, is Christ the crucified Lamb. It is by dying that He conquers our sin. And for that fact, for that reality, John says further in Revelation, verse 12 of that same chapter, all creation will sing His praises. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Oh, what a Savior Christ is as we see Him here. What a glorious King. But then as I said, there's a third thing we see here as John opens this window to us. Not only is He the judge before whom we will stand, the Lamb who takes away our sin. But third, this condemned one is the King of kings. As he leads him out, verse 14, Pilate says, Behold, your King! Now why does Pilate say that? Well, in all likelihood, from his perspective, it's nothing more than an attempt to shame the Jews. They forced his hand. He doesn't want to kill Jesus. He he has no choice, he thinks. And so he gives this final dig. You people think you're really in charge, do you? Look what I can do. I'm about to crucify your king. That's what we Romans do with people like you. I am sending your king to his death. Behold your king. If you add this to last week, you realize this is the second behold 
in just a few verses. And just like the behold your man we looked at in verse 5, Pilate is again speaking more than he knows. Remember to hold the man? Pilate meant it as a statement of pity, but heaven meant it as a proclamation of grace. Here is the man who will take away Adam's sin. Here is the Messiah who comes to bring reconciliation to God. And I mentioned last week how this phrase, Behold the man, is first found in Genesis pointing us to Christ as the second Adam who reverses the curse. But there's another place this phrase is used that also points to Christ, but this time highlighting the fact that He is God's Messiah King. Zechariah 6, verse 12 and 13, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold the man whose name is the branch. That is a messianic title. He shall branch out from this place. He shall build the temple of the Lord and He shall sit and rule on His throne. And Jeremiah goes further and says, This righteous branch shall reign forever as King. Behold the man. Behold the King. Not just any old man, but the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Behold the man who is heaven's true King. Behold the man who takes the throne of heaven and reigns forever. Which, by the way, is why Zechariah goes on to proclaim in Zechariah 9.9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem! Behold, your King is coming to you, righteous and having salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey. And you remember that scene, don't you, from John uh, chapter 12, where Jesus enters Jerusalem on His way to the cross on a donkey. So again, Pilate proclaims here far more than he realizes. Who is this man? Oh, he's the king. And not just any old king, but the king of kings and the Lord of lords who will reign forever and ever. Revelation 19 says... And oh, if only they had eyes to see. If only those there had ears to hear. If only they could understand who this is, that before Him every knee will bow and every tongue confess. Do you see that? Do you understand that? Oh friend, will you embrace this King? Will you give Him your ultimate allegiance? Which brings us to the third movement in this passage. And that is, it then falls down to the people's choice. And they embrace Caesar, not Christ. When they hear Pilate say, Behold your king, they are enraged. Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate says, Shall I crucify your king? And they scream back, We have no king but Caesar. Wow! With the thunder of a thousand or more voices, they cry out, away with Him. Away with Him. Crucify Him. And it's not a request. They're not pleading. It's in the form of a command. Pilate, you better do this. You better give us what we demand. Pilate taunts them. So shall I crucify your king? Crucify Him? Really? 
If you know anything about the Jewish people in this time period, you know that they abhorred crucifixion. They considered it barbaric, ghastly, pagan, a horrid evil. They were offended by the fact that Rome would defile their land in this way. And yet here they demand it. Crucify Him. Why? Because in their minds, this will thoroughly discredit Jesus so that no one will ever again be tempted to believe that He's a Messiah. They thought crucifying Him on a cross, on a tree, would ruin any credibility He'd ever had. Why is that? Because Deuteronomy 21 pronounces a curse from God on anyone who is hanged on a tree. Deuteronomy 21, for a man hanged on a tree is cursed by God. So they don't want him stoned. That was the normal Jewish way of killing people. They don't want that. They don't want him strangled, which some in that era used. They want him hung on a cross so that he becomes a curse. Never realizing that this was exactly what God planned all along. Yes, Christ became a curse so that on the cross He might bear God's curse for us. Right? Not for His own sins, but for our sins. The Apostle Paul picks up that very theme in Galatians 3. You can read it sometime, but in 13 of that chapter, he says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, quoting the same verse, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Oh, the beauty of Christ. Oh, the love displayed on the cross as He made Himself a curse for us. How, how could you not own Him as your Lord and embrace Him as your King and receive from Him all that He so willingly gives, the innocent Lamb who bore my curse that I might be clean and righteous in the presence of God. God made Him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God, 2 Corinthians says. I mean, praise Him. Praise His name. But they do not. When Pilate says, shall I crucify your King? The rage comes at Him. I can't even imagine we have no King but Caesar. Now I suspect there was a stunned silence gripping the angels of heaven in that moment. We have no king but Caesar. The priests said it. The people said it. How can that be? I remember who these people are. Remember who these priests are. These are the heirs of God's holy promises throughout the Old Covenant. They are the heirs of that covenant. They were chosen by Him, called and created as a nation to belong exclusively to Him. How many times in Scripture has God told them, You are Mine. I am your God. You shall have no other gods. You shall have no other king besides Me. Others like David may come and reign at My command, but I am your king and there is no other. 
Uh, that kingship of God is a theme that runs throughout the entire Old Testament. Isaiah 43.15 I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. Isaiah 44.6 Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides Me there is no other God. Psalm 10 verse 16, The Lord is King forever and ever. And so when David became king, it was understood. It was clear. He is only reigning in God's place. He is God's representative king, ruling as a vassal under God. God is still the great king. God will always be the king. David reigns as a mere man after God's own heart. And when David died... God promised there would be another king, a true king, to reign forever and ever. 2 Samuel 7, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I'll raise up your seed, your offspring after you, and he shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom, and he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And that promised king has come. And they reject Him. We will not have this man to rule over us. And instead, instead of embracing allegiance to God's true King given according to promise, they repudiate Him and so repudiate the entirety of their spiritual heritage. They turn from Him to embrace the pagan ruler of Rome. We have no king but Caesar. And heaven wept. But remember what John told us from the beginning. As we began this study, John 1.11 says, Jesus came to His own and His own people did not receive Him. But to those who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. But they didn't. Instead of Him, they chose Caesar. Caesar! Caesar! The very definition of worldly authority setting itself against God. That's why John four verse uh, James four verse four warns you adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world? I want to be the friend of Caesar. I want to have Caesar's friendship. That's the safe bet. That friendship with the world is enmity with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. <laughs> They just positioned themselves as the enemies of God. Philippians 3.18 For many, Paul warns, of whom I've often told you and tell you now with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Huh. What about us? When push comes to shove, this is the dilemma that you face and will face. Who are you going to serve? Who will hold the ultimate allegiance of your heart? Christ or Caesar? 
You know, the early church faced that dilemma quite literally when the emperors began uh, in, 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 a, in a decade or so after this, a couple of decades, began to demand worship in the form of a little pinch of incense offered on an altar in the town square to the divine Caesar along with a simple proclamation, Kaiser esti curios, Caesar is Lord. And Christians couldn't do it because they didn't believe Kaiser esti curios. They believe Christos esti curios. Christ is Lord. And many were imprisoned, many were beaten, and many died rather than choose Caesar over Christ. Could you and I take that stand? Who will you serve? Who owns the ultimate allegiance of your heart? You say, well, nobody. I'm my own boss. I'm in charge. I'm I'm the one who makes the shots. I live for me. Then you are an utter fool. Because that is the deadliest fantasy of them all. Now you are your own Caesar. And that's even worse. An earthly Caesar to whom you give allegiance might, through God's common grace, stumble upon a little wisdom now and again. But the man or woman who listens only to themselves has only a fool for a counselor. No, Bob Dylan was right. You're going to serve somebody. It might be the devil and it might be the Lord. But you're going to serve somebody. By the way, you know, theologian Bob Dylan didn't come up with that on his own. Jesus said it first in the Sermon on the Mount. No one can serve two masters. For he'll either hate the one and love the other... He'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and mammon is the word. It means worldly wealth and power. You can't. And yet how many churches, how many Christians, I'll I'll use that with air quotes, have yielded their allegiance to the Caesars of this world thinking, I can hold on to both. And it never works. As soon as you embrace the one, you must turn your back on the other. Because you can't have both. When the early church baptized someone, we used the Nicene Creed this morning, so this is going back even further than that. When the early church baptized someone as part of the ritual, the one being baptized was led to proclaim, I renounce Satan and all his works that I might embrace Christ. We ought to use that. That's what baptism means. Is that what you have done? Where have you not done that? Because you cannot have both. You cannot have Christ and Caesar. You can't live for Christ and embrace the sexual immorality and insanity of this present world. You just can't. To take hold of the one, you by definition renounce the other. Look at 1 Thessalonians 4. You cannot have Christ and embrace the hatred of this world, despising people of a different race or background, or even despising people of a different politics. I don't mean you can't despise their politics. But you move on to despise them. And then loving only those who are just like you, your own little tight circle. You can't do that. John makes that very clear. You cannot live for Christ and live for money. 
or power or fame or self-gratification. You certainly cannot make a God of yourself, a little king or queen of your own feelings and desires which you follow like a slave. You can't do it. Christ alone must be embraced as king. Christ alone must be embraced as king. But understand, wherever Christ is king, there will be a cross. This is where we end things for this morning. Following Jesus means following Him into death. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who ultimately paid such a price, said, when Christ bids a man come follow me, he bids him come and die. It's death to self, death to sin, that I might live with him. Verse 16 ends this section saying, So he delivered him, the king, over to them to be crucified. The kingship of Christ leads to a cross for all who follow Him. Anybody told you different, they lied to you. Uh, Luke 9.23, If anyone would come after Me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow Me. There is no other kind of Christian. There is no halfway commitment to Christ and, you know, just to keep my options open so I don't go to hell or something like that. It's not about hell ultimately. It's about Christ. Hell is real. That's where our sins take us. But Christ delivers us from hell that we might have Him. It's not even so we can have heaven. It's so we can have Him. Because where He is, that is heaven. If you know who He is, if you've seen Him, will you follow Jesus this morning? Believer, will you yield once again your heart to Him As sovereign Lord, will you renounce every other allegiance to give your full and undivided loyalty to Him? And we can talk about how that works out and how we do that and how we do it in our homes and in our jobs and all that. That's application, but this is the central commitment of the Christian's heart. Christos est curios. Jesus is Lord. Let's pray, Father. You sent Your Son to die in our place, the Lamb who was slain, so that when we stand before the One who is judge, our sins are washed away. And we go out proclaiming with joy the King who reigns forever and ever and ever. Lord, will You do what I cannot? Will You create faith in hearts even now to look away from themselves to Jesus. To look to Jesus and give to Him an undivided loyalty and to follow. Lord, in this life we will never follow perfectly. We get that, but we will follow. We must follow because following You is what it means to be Yours. Grant the grace even now to turn from anything and everything else, to to toss caution and fear to the side and to embrace Christ fully by faith alone. It is in His name we pray. Amen.